This message is brought to you by House on the Rock Fellowship. We are a church that serves and cares for the Miami Valley region in Ohio. Before you continue, make sure to access the notes from our download section of our message page and have your Bible ready. Thank you for being our guest. Good morning. It's wonderful to see you. Uh, to our guests, my name is Paul. I'm a pastor and teacher here. I'm one of the elders. It means a lot that you'd come out and join us on a Sunday morning. If you're watching online, thank you for being with us. Make sure you check in with the hosts that are there. Uh, it's just a way that we can help connect with you on your journey of faith. Make sure you have your Bibles and make sure you have a set of notes. This last week was the first week of my son's summer vacation. This is a good thing. A summer vacation is a good thing. But I have also learned over the years that three teenage boys in a confined space can be very dangerous, right? And so we want to get out of the house as much as possible. And it was decided that, hey, as the four of us, the four men, why don't we go play disc golf? So we give the three teenagers and an invalid a bunch of hard plastic and whip them around at each other. <laughs> I've never played before. I've never, never played. The boys have gone. The boys have you know, disc golf discs. Uh, which is, if you don't know what disc golf is, just have golf in the back of your mind, but kind of like with fancy Frisbees. I had Frisbee in the back of my mind, and so I thought I would naturally be very good at it. Why wouldn't I think that? And then I get up there and, you know, Lucas, you know, lets it rip, and Jackson and Aiden and the younger two played a lot and very good. And I get up there and I just, and it goes about 10 yards and it just goes that way. It was quite embarrassing, but I'm like, this is going to be a long, long morning. But we had a lot of, it was a lot of good, good, good fun. Um, out in Tip City, they have a nice course, I guess. I don't have anything to compare it to, but we had a good time. But it was on the second hole where we noticed that this might become a greater challenge than we had anticipated. The hole, if you will, runs along a line of hedges and trees. And it can be very easy to launch the disc and have it careen off into the trees. In fact, I'm very good at that. I'm very, very good at that. The other challenge is that no one at any point in the history of Tip City has ever thought to spray anything for poison ivy. <laughs> I am not allergic to poison ivy, personally. Um, Lucas is not allergic to poison ivy. We do have one son who is very, very sensitive to poison ivy. If he looks at it, you know, it's, it's one of those. And so um, we have to be very sensitive to those things because the scrubs don't work, the soaps don't work, the creams don't work. If he comes into contact with poison ivy, there is nothing that will eradicate it from his system apart from going to urgent care, apart from going to the emergency and getting shots, getting injections. There's nothing else that will work. We have to explain this every single time we go in there. Well, if you tried this, if you tried this, just give him the shot. Just give him the shot. And knowing this son, he's probably already pulled his pants down. And says, yeah, stick it right there, buddy. Uh, can I have a sticker? <laughs> it's just been the routine for as long as he's been alive. He is vulnerable to poison ivy when the rest of us aren't. Why does that matter? Because I saw a beautiful thing happen with my sons that I'm very thankful for. And I have good sons and I love them very much and I respect them highly. 
Throughout the course of the game, once we had established the fact that poison ivy was going to be a factor, the two would go out of their way to get the disc for the other one. If it went out into the woods, if it was amongst, hey, I'll go get it. Hey, let me go get it. Let me go get it. Now, <laughs> they might then rub it all over themselves or spit on it and give it back to him or whatever it was that they wanted. But the fact remained that for all of us to maneuver this challenge in this journey together, they had to recognize that one of them was vulnerable to something that the others weren't. And they needed to do something so that the other could experience the same journey. Not fair. Not about being fair. But in that moment, it was incredibly just. It was an exercise in justice. And you might say, oh, Pastor Paul, that doesn't have anything to do with justice. And I'm here to tell you, it has everything to do with justice. Perhaps you are like me in that when you initially start to wrestle with the question of justice, you immediately think of a judge, you think of a gavel, you think of a jury, maybe you think of lady justice, blindfolded, holding up the scales and have to even things out, right? Retributive justice is what we call that, which is actually, as far as the scripture is concerned, a very, very narrow Part, a very, very small aspect of the greater theme of righteousness and justice that's all throughout the story. And as I began to wrestle with this in my own journey a few months ago, it became clear to me that this is probably something that the greater church body should wrestle with. Because it seems to be something that's very, very important to the heart of God. After all, he specifically said, I love justice. You do justice. So what does that mean? So the beginning of May, we started this journey. Hey, all right, let's see what Jesus has to say. And wasn't it interesting? And isn't it interesting that when Jesus introduces himself and his ministry, his opening message starts out like this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus introduces himself to the teaching community in the public world by saying, I'm here for justice. I am here to proclaim liberty for poor people, to heal blind people, to confront oppression and proclaim that this is the year of the Lord's favor. Luke chapter four, based on Isaiah chapter 61. The year of the Lord's favor, the great season of the great reset of God. God saying, I'm here to put everything right. Justice. So, oh, okay. Well, Jesus has something to say about justice. Well, let's look at it a little bit more. In the following week, we learned that, wow, if you really step back and look at Scripture, it really has everything to do with justice. I mean, not that we really understand what justice is or not, but man, it seems to be all about this idea of restoring things and putting things back to the way that they were. And we are called to be zealous for good works and to be consumed with righteousness and justice. So much so that if we gave you a good squeeze, what would come out is righteousness and justice. That you are concerned with how people walk with God and you're concerned 
their walk with one another, righteousness. Like, all right, well, let's take it a little bit farther. We talked about God in general, our understanding of God, that God is good, God creates good, God shares what is good, and then God will restore what is good through Jesus Christ. That there is a base foundation of goodness in the story. A way things ought to be, a way things should be. And he has shared that with us. The story begins with goodness, and God will hold us accountable to that goodness and our participation in that. Last week, we took a little bit of a break for Pentecost Sunday and the role of the Holy Spirit in our life, which I think is a beautiful thing. But why don't we jump back into the question of justice and see if we can't turn that diamond just a little bit more. To help us do that, I want you to find an odd book, a difficult book, the book Zechariah in your Bibles. Zechariah was a priest. It might be easier if you go to the table of contents in your Bible. It's just a couple books before the New Testament starts. So if you find Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, if you go back a couple books, Malachi, Zechariah is what we're looking for. And specifically Zechariah chapter 7. If you're watching online, you know, take out a copy of the scriptures. Uh, we'll have them up on the screen for you. But Zechariah chapter 7, we're going to look at verses uh, 8, 9, and 10 specifically. We're going to drill down on. Your notes are a helpful place just to write things down that you want to remember or extra verses that I might mention or questions that you have. Zechariah 7, verses 8, 9, and 10. Zechariah 7, 8, 9, and 10. Again, it's a tricky one. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Literally the word justice. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Let me read that for us again. Okay? Not long, not complicated. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true justice. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. My goal this morning is, again, just to paint with a very broad stroke, to kind of sketch in, if you will, our understanding of justice. Because for many of us, all we have when we think of justice is something very, very narrow. It probably has to do with words like fair, it has to do with words like right. It has to do with words like law and a judge. But notice, if you will, that's not to say that those aren't there, but he says in the beginning, render true judgments, true justice. Well, that might infer that there's such a thing as false justice, fake justice. 
Can you have a law on the books and they're not fair? Can you have a law on the books that aren't fair that are enforced by unfair judges? Can you have a system that is unjust justice? Oh, 100% yes. Completely yes. Just because we as Americans call something legal or call something justice does not mean God calls it just. In fact, let me give you an example from Scripture. In Isaiah chapter 10, in Isaiah chapter 10, the prophet speaks to this kind of injustice. Isaiah chapter 10 verses 1 and 2 says, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice, to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. He says, whoa, there is a curse upon you because you keep writing laws that aren't just and right. Woe to you because you don't just write laws, you enforce laws. You enforce a system of justice that is not just. And as a result, the widows fall prey, the fatherless falls prey, the poor do not receive their rights, and people are oppressed. So there is such a thing as false, fake justice. You get to the end of the book of Isaiah in Isaiah 59, and God looks down at the greater nation as a whole and says, I'm sick and tired of this. There is no justice in your streets. There is no righteousness in the land. You oppress, and you press down, and you take advantage of. And God says, I will now come down and take care of this myself, because you will not do it. So it's right and it's good for this priest to say in Zechariah chapter 7, hey, make sure that you are rendering true justice. What is true justice? Here's some words that I might write down and I'll unpack all of them together. To care about justice, to render true justice means to steward communities. Write that down. To steward communities of human flourishing, of human flourishing with God and each other. With God. And each other. If I will be a person of justice, if you will be a person of justice, then you will take up the mantle to steward communities of human flourishing with God and each other. All of those pieces must be at play. To steward something is to say, I don't own it. I've only been asked to take care of it. Well, who owns it? God owns it. God owns all of it. There's nothing that God did not own. You don't own your life. It's not your body. It's not your land. It's not your car. It's not your house. It's not your breath. They're all gifts of God. We're merely asked to steward them, which means take care of them the way the owner wants them to take care of. 
But beyond our individualism is the recognition that we thrive in communities. We are to steward communities, interactions, one with another, groups, people groups, where what happens in those communities, not where one group flourishes, but where humanity flourishes. All man, all men and women flourish. Flourish, what does it mean, flourish? Think Eden, think paradise, think Adam and Eve, men and women in relationship together with God, with others in creation, in goodness, in rightness. Why? Because God is good, God creates good, God shares good, God restores good. That's why we went there. That if it's justice, if it's flourishing, then people are learning how to walk correctly with God and walk correctly one with another. Do you understand why I say how our understanding of justice, American justice, is probably about that thick and that deep? When God is expecting and inviting so much more from us, render true justice. Steward communities and environments and families and relationships where humans can flourish thrive, be everything that they were called and designed to be in relationship with God and relationship one with another. You need to have both. You need to have both. I cannot be my best version of me cut off from a relationship with God. I cannot be my best version of me cut off from relationships with others. We do not exist well in isolation. In fact, in isolation, really bad things happen. Render true justice. But he goes on to say that there's a reason we have to make this command. Show kindness and mercy to one another. We're going to talk about that. If you would take that idea and just put it over on the shelf, we'll come back to it in a few weeks. What that actually plays out as practically in a life of justice. But enough today. Let's just wrestle with this. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. To wrestle with the justice question, I need to recognize my evil heart. I need to recognize my evil heart. Do not oppress Let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. That word another used twice in that passage is the word for brother. There's to be a brotherhood of humanity, once amongst each other. Do not devise evil oppression against each other. Evil, this should be obvious. Evil is the opposite of good. Who is good? God. What does God do? God creates good. God shares good. God restores what is good. So I have within me, within my very nature and my very being, a twisted, crooked, broken grasp of reality, so much so that my natural inclination is to do the opposite that God has told me to do. It is my natural disposition as a broken, corrupt human being to do the opposite of what God has said is good. That's why he has to say, don't oppress. 
Let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. And it goes all the way back to the beginning. God created good. God made a good creation. He put humanity as his good image bearers within that creation, the image of Adam and Eve in goodness, walking in relationship with God in goodness, walking in relationship with creation in goodness. But what do we do? We have let the lie of lack seed within our soul, so much so that we go from being stewards to takers. A steward receives a trust from an owner. And the owner says, take care of this. But because we have given room for a lie of lack to seed in our soul, we go from stewarding to taking. The serpent comes up to Adam and Eve and says, oh, he told you not to eat from that tree? Yeah, we're not supposed to eat from that tree, but we can eat from all the other ones. Oh, well, he didn't tell you, did he? He's holding out on you. In fact, if you take from that tree, that which God told you not to take, you can actually decide what's right and wrong on your own terms. And it says that what? She went and took the fruit. That word take is very important. Anytime you bump into that idea in the Old Testament, it's a way of saying we're doing something or about to do something we really shouldn't be doing. When, take for example, Abraham and Sarah, take Hagar. Not a good thing. So you go through the first chapters of Genesis. What do we see? We see humanity taking things they're not supposed to take. They took from the tree. Because now we're takers. We believe that there's not enough. We believe that God's holding out on us. So we have to take. You get to the next chapter. One brother takes the life of another brother. Oh, I need to take control of this. I need to take my own. Let someone take advantage of me. And Cain kills Abel. Because of the twistedness of our hearts. The evilness of our hearts, which does what? I have to take with this hand and I will oppress you with the other one. I have to keep you back and I have to take this to myself. Get to chapter 5 of Genesis, get to chapter 6 of Genesis, and God makes this huge diagnostic statement. Oh my goodness, their heart is only evil all the time. And you have stories like the flood. You have stories like the Nephilim and the Rephidim when the, spirit, when the sons of God come down and take the daughters of Eve. Because this taking has saturated all of creation. You get to the Tower of Babel. So this is how this plays out. Psychologically, sociologically. If I believe that there's not enough, I will take every chance I can. I need to take care of me. I need to take care of me. I need to take care of me. What I also might find out is, oh, well, if we got together, you and I, we could take together. And so we kind of hunker together in what we call tribes. Now, that's an okay thing, provided there's certain checks and balances, right? We need to just kind of, you, know, you watch my back, I'll watch your back because there's some evil out there. So it's, a, you know, let's just be honest. 
but the human heart left to itself, those tribes of takers will quickly become tribes of conquerors. And so what we start to do is we start to draw lines. You stand that side of the line, I'll stay on this side of the line. I'm here with my people, you're over there with your people. And something incredibly tragic and twisted and perverse happens to the fabric of society. Uh, I want to illustrate this. Um, Aiden, will you come on up here, please? Harry Fleming, will you come on up here, please? Ethan, you come up here, please? Paul Brown, you come up here, please? Stand next to me, son. Nice shirt. You'd be looking good. I know. Yeah. Ethan, you take that side of the, the sheet. You take that end. Harry, you take that end of the sheet. Paul, you take that other end of the sheet down there. And if you go down there and then step a little bit, you're going to hold that end. You just step down, step down. Don't fall down. Step down, step down. Hold up just so everyone can see it. Paul, go down. There we see. Can I see? All right. What has happened to this sheet? That's good. Go ahead and stand up for me. What's happened to it? No, I want you to stand right there. Wow. Yeah. See how that works? Power. This is the fabric of humanity. This is the fabric of humanity. Unintended. The natural recourse and the result of human beings whose hearts are twisted and broken and perverse. It's torn. It's tattered. Where God had intended a oneness and a unity, humanity has done what to it? Torn it and broke it. How? Why? Well, guys, if we just pull this, it's a little bit taunt, a little bit taunt. Perfect, 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 perfect. Because what's the natural inclination of my soul? What do I, what is the natural inclination of my soul because of sin and death? I have to take, right? And so as I take, and as they take, what starts to happen? More and more and more, right? Well, I don't want bad things to happen, so I will align myself with others who feel the same way and think the same way so that we can pull together and we can grab together. But what are they going to do over there? No, 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 no. And so what do we start to do? All right, I'm going to draw a line right here. Don't you cross that line. You don't cross your line, you don't cross your line, and you don't cross your line. Lest we fall into mutual destruction. But something else starts to happen. You see, there are people right here on the edges of society and humanity where chaos and order meet, where there is community and where there is chaos. What we find are people who fall through the cracks. The one scripture calls the vulnerable. Thanks, guys. To care about justice is to have a divine sensibility to the vulnerable in your midst. And we see in this passage to restore the vulnerable, you don't oppress the widow. 
You don't oppress the fatherless. You don't oppress the poor. You don't oppress the sojourner. You practice kindness. You practice mercy. Those who, because of reality and the brokenness of humanity, it is easy for them to fall through the cracks. And here's where the justice thing gets very, very complicated. Because you'd think, well, that just would be easy, right? Says, no, because our hearts are so twisted. We will, we will construct systems of allegiance that enable us to keep the vulnerable at bay and preserve our own empire. Whether that empire be big or that empire have 50 states in it. Whether that empire be a hillside or that, hill, or that empire be an entire continent. And so what you will find is because God has such a love for people, when he talks about justice and caring about justice, he will attach through the voice of the prophets, through the voice of the priests, through the voice of the poets, these people. He will talk about justice. Don't forget the widows. Justice. Don't forget the fatherless. Justice. Don't forget the poor. Justice. Don't forget the sojourner. Why? Because it is those people who live and exist on the edge of chaos. Some through choices of their own, some through the brokenness of reality. I mean, let's take them as an example. The widow and the fatherless, what do they have in common? The widowed and the fatherless. They no longer live and dwell underneath the patriarchal support of the head of the household, okay? Within this agrarian patriarchal culture, I'm using patriarchal in a very genuine, biblical, non-pejorative, non-judgmental term, okay? There's nothing wrong with the patriarchal society in and of itself. It's a descriptor that within this culture and in this time, land is passed on through the male, the man, okay? Much of the financial well-being is secured and held through the name of the man. The land is governed through the male, okay? So when that figurehead dies, widowed, fatherless, what that means is there's blood in the water. In the sharks of oppression... And the wolves will come out to play. Because that shepherd is not there to secure the rights of his family and to protect his people, it is easy for them to fall through the cracks of oppression as people go for land grabs and financial grabs and sell women into slavery and sell children into oppression. So he says, if you're caring about justice, make sure you're looking out for the people who don't have anyone looking out for them. People like the fatherless, people like the widowless. That's why I had to say, well, you know, those, you know, why does it say motherless? Well, what if I lost my mom? 
That doesn't subject you to issues of injustice like it does if the father's not there in this culture. It also means we need to wrestle with the questions of injustice within our culture. Who, the way we have set up society here, who dwells on the edges of chaos? And who is it very easy for them to fall through the cracks and not receive the rights of humanity? The sojourner. Why mention the sojourner? Oh my goodness, God has such love for the sojourner. The foreigner, the one who's passing through, the one who is outside his home, the one who is outside of security, outside of the protection of his home community. God says he has rights. He has rights. You should care about the rights of the sojourner. You should don't want him to fall prey to, be taken advantage of. Jesus, when he starts flipping tables at the temple, you know why? Because there were systems of injustice that were taking advantage of those who were coming from outside lands who wanted to worship God, who were falling prey to inflation rates and trade rates that were unjust. But what will we do in the United States of America? I can't speak to other countries. I'll just speak to this one. We will form tribes of allegiance by which we can preserve ours and keep the other at bay. So you have to ask yourself, am I part of a system of oppression? What about the poor? He says, the poor. Well, what do we start to do immediately? Well, why are they poor? Because I work hard. Why are they poor? I work hard. That's great. That's great. I'm glad that you work hard. Then that kind of person would fall into a category called the sluggard in the book of Proverbs. That's not what at play here. He's not talking about the sluggard who doesn't want to work. When it says, oh, there's a lion in the streets. This is Proverbs chapter 6. This is Proverbs chapter 22, Proverbs chapter 24. There's a lion in the streets that can't work. You translate that word lion, it's, it's talking about a mangy old lion who doesn't even have his teeth. Oh, I can't go work. There's a lion out there. Yeah, okay, you can't work. Whatever. No, poor. The poor. The people who are financially disenfranchised. The ones who don't have enough resources do what needs to be. Maybe it was a bad harvest. Maybe it was years of bad harvest. Maybe because of their financial position and the systems of oppression that are in the midst, it's very easy to take advantage of them. He says, they have rights. The poor have rights. The rights of a human being. The rights of food. The rights of shelter. The rights of security. They have rights. He says, do not oppress the widows. Do not oppress the fatherless. Do not oppress the sojourner. Do not oppress the poor. Their presence has a claim on me. You understand that? Their presence 
has a claim upon me as one who is a steward of God's stuff. My concern is not my rights. It's their rights. But that is human. Created in the precious image of God. And so I will take, and I will find other people who will take with me. And those who will not take with me well, I'll just have to big enough, build a big enough army so I can take theirs too. And so we have consumerism and the rise of tribalism and the rise of militantism. And we'll take our pruning hooks and we turn them into spears. And the fabric tears. And the fabric tears. We are okay with this depending on where you draw the lines. As an American, you love justice, right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of, right? Justice for all, right? We like, that's like a big deal. That's like an American thing, right? Justice for all, depending on who's on what side of the line, but if God immediately tells me when it comes to the concern for the vulnerable that it includes the foreigner and it includes the sojourner and it includes the poor, those lines, that might be kind of messy. Let me illustrate, okay? There's a beautiful river that goes through Piqua, right? How many of you seen it? It's a nice little river, right? Some of you like to float on it, swim on it, boat on it. Love it. It's great. I thank you, Porter. Yep. You might say, and you might become aware of the fact, that pending on what side of the river that you are born on, you might have access to more security and stability than someone born on the other side of the river. I'm not saying that exists. I'm just using it as an illustration. Let's say you found out that there was a young boy who was born on the other side of the river who because of no fault of his own except that he was born on that side of the river does not have access to the security and the resources and the help that a human being should have rights to, that a human being needs to thrive and flourish, okay? Would you not say that you have a responsibility and a right to go meet that young, that young boy's needs, correct? Right? Yeah, absolutely. We would say, you know, especially since our church is located right here in Piqua, if we want to be a place that cares about justice, it doesn't matter that he's born on the other side of the river, right? Hey, either we're all free or none of us are free. So let's go help him. Awesome. We agree. But what if it's not that river? And what if it's the Rio Grande? And instead of Piqua, it's Laredo and Juarez. It's just a river. And what if you were to find out that a little boy 
born on the other side of the river, needed help, needed food, needed medical care, needed shelter, needed security. What God says are the rights of a human being, the rights of the poor. Why is that such a struggle for us? Why is that such a struggle for us? Why? Because some sovereign decided that that's not just a river? That that's the southern border of the United States of America, a sovereign country? Well, dude, if the sovereigns of countries want to play with lines, let them play with lines. They want to move the lines around? Fine, you move the lines around. Not my king. Not my king. I have a moral obligation as a steward of God's goodness and creation to bring human flourishing as people walk with God and walk with one another. So beware allegiances that give you permission to keep other humans at bay. Beware allegiances that give you permission to keep other humans at bay. It could be a national allegiance. It could be a political allegiance. It could be a hobby. It could be an association. It could be a club. It could be a neighborhood. It could be a race, which is false. It could be a gender, which is a human construct. It could be sexuality, which the Bible never says to define yourself as. I could go on and I could go on and I could go on and I could go on. The fabric of humanity, God has intended to be whole and to be complete. But through the perversion and the brokenness of our own hearts, what will we do? We will pull and we will make lines and we will make divisions and we will pride ourselves in that which keeps others at bay. He says, do not, do not oppress Do not devise evil in your hearts. Show kindness and mercy. The Good Samaritan, which is on your justice guide, and I've been encouraging you to read regularly. Interesting how in that story is a question of ethnicity. You ever notice in that story who fails the justice question? Remember, a man falls among thieves. They beat him, take all of his stuff, leave him for dead. And a religious person shows up, a priest shows up, walks on the other side of the street. He distances himself. Why? Well, maybe he, I got to stay religiously pure. I got to stay religiously whole. I will rationalize my relationship with God so I can keep you at bay. A Levite, same religious issue. I will keep you at bay. And a good Samaritan draws near and draws close. The good Samaritan draws near and draws close. This passage in Zechariah chapter 7, the whole reason behind the priest's prescription 
of seeking justice is because some people had come to him with a religious question. Hey, are we supposed to fast on these certain days? There were times when the nation had set aside to remember when the temple was destroyed and when an incredible, a terrible assassination had happened. And so they would have memorials of fasting. And they're like, hey, since we're rebuilding the temple, do we still need to fast on these days? God's like, really? You're really going to get hung up on this question? Really? That, that's your priority right now. Your priority right now is this. You know what got you in this mess in the first place? You wouldn't do the justice thing. You wouldn't take care of one another. You would oppress and you would be lying and you, you would keep people down. And so the priest looks to them and says, really? That's your issue? This one? Render justice. True justice. Apparently the religious people are the ones who are at the worst at this. We will justify our own Unjustice. We will justify the oppression of others and call it holiness. Maybe that's why throughout the whole New Testament, it's the Christians who are commanded to do justice. In Hebrews chapter 13, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 2 and 3, it says this. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Well, which strangers? The ones I know? The ones I like? For thereby some have entertained angels. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Hebrews 13, verse 16, do not neglect to do good. That's code for do justice. Take care of people. And share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. We need a certain type of person a certain type of person who will look below the veil and see who society is covering over and neglecting and forgetting. We need a type of person who will carry a mantle of justice, who will wear it, who will put themselves under it, who will let their heart be transformed and changed and pricked and broken, who will let their eyes be opened to see, who will not turn away, who will not distance, who will not play the allegiance card or the politics card or the gender card or the race card. Who will say, I'm just a servant. Can I help you? For I once was lost, and now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. In a little bit, we're going to come to the table. I love this. 
Do you understand, my brothers and sisters, how unjust this table is and how we as Americans define justice? There's nothing fair here. This isn't fair. A man was unjustly assassinated by the empire. A man who was poor, a man who was crushed, a man who was unjustly incarcerated, unjustly tortured. And then his graciousness and his kindness and his benevolence and his goodness says, hey, you come to the table. You don't deserve it. You come to the table. Are you hungry? You come to the table. Are you homeless? You come to my table. Are you chained? Be set free. Come to my table. Let me show you kindness. Let me show you mercy. Then he says to us, go and do likewise. Artist, would you come up, please? I know, I know I've probably poked a little bit. In fact, I was told a couple weeks ago to watch what I say. Hold my communion juice. But this will challenge us. It will challenge us. We'll wrestle. And you can be mad at me, that's fine. It will force us to question the way most of us dispose of our faith as there's such a thing as dual citizenship when really at the core is an issue of competing allegiances. But as we wrestle, then let's at least come and be sustained at the table for he became poor that we might become rich. So we will sing and we'll reflect. We'll have a moment of repentance. And then Doug will guide us at the table. Thank you for sharing your time with us. And we'd love for the journey to continue. If you're a guest, would you consider reaching out to us? We would love to come alongside and encourage you in any way that we can. If you're someone who's joined us today, and you are desperately reaching to find hope wherever you can. Again, Jesus came that we would find hope. You can find hope today. If you want to send us a short note, a member of our hope team would reach out quickly, promptly, to come alongside and see what we can do to encourage you in whatever storm you might find yourself in. That's why Jesus came, and that's why we're here. Jesus said there's two ways to live your life. And a wise man, a wise woman, builds their life on Jesus' instructions. God bless.